Think about how gross like a music festival really is or hell just going to a bar with your friends or a cafe. Like it's spooky. (laughs) Hello and welcome to the latest edition of Pino and Policy with your friend here, Drake McFarlane, Hannah Cowden, and a special guest, Hannah, do you want to announce who we have this time to drink with us? Yeah, my younger brother, Michael Luzatter. Um, he's joined us today to do something a little different than we usually do, um, which is talk about actual science. That's something oh, that we fantastic. don't do very often here. <laughs> so somebody um, who got a STEM degree, I get it. Somebody who actually knows what they're doing. Awesome. <laughs> on his way. What What is the degree that you're getting? Um, I'm getting a degree in general biology. <laughs> So, like, military generals? Okay, that's a dumb joke. It's fine. Don't worry about it. So, awesome. Well, uh, as is tradition with Pinot and Policy, we have to be drinking and be at the very least day drunk by the end of the episode. Today, I am drinking a mimosa. It is a Simply Orange mixed with Madame Liberty, a American-made champagne uh, that tastes about $15 is how it tastes. Hannah, what are you drinking? (laughs) Um, I have some um, box wine in, with some orange juice in it. A little less fancy. Tastes like less than $15. Um, nice. Yeah. And Michael? I am drinking orange juice because I have yet to turn 21. But nice. it's in a coffee mug. It's delightful. So we're ready to That's go. That's lovely. <laughs> well, it's great. And um, it's a little bit different since we're doing this whole social distancing thing and all remoting into the podcast. But it's good to know that we're all going to be drunk, at least on life, by the end of this. So, um, Hannah, let's 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 start things off here. So the, the gist of this episode is we're going to be talking about coronavirus, like everybody always talks about right now. But this time we're going to be talking about how it works, why it works, what the hell a virus actually is, and all that. And it's convenient that we have somebody who actually is an expert in that thing. So, Hannah, want to start asking away and what's going on? Yeah. So what I want to do is start at the very beginning, like high school biology kind of thing. Uh, Michael, what is a virus? So I would say in its most basic essence, a virus is a particle that contains genetic material in a shell Um, and this genetic material can be um, injected into cells and cause viral infections Um, and so the structure of a virus is really the shell the genetic material inside and then some viruses will have an envelope on the outside what do you mean by envelope? envelope so an envelope is a covering for the entire virus phage so a phage is you can picture it as almost like a space lander like what would land on the moon um, Mm -hmm. where it has the capsule where all of the people on board are stored and then it has the landing gear Um, and the landing gear is what will actually land on the cell and the capsule is the people who will walk out of the or it contains the people who will walk out onto the moon and the envelope is basically an entire packaging for that. Huh. Okay. So that's the like hexag. Hold on. Hexagonal is that the right word for hexagons? Um, is it the hexagonal shaped like balloon thing that you see depicted? 
Yeah, so that's that's the capsule on the moon lander, that hexagonal structure. Um, and the actual envelope is, so you know the emoji of the virus, that's that green outer shell. <laughs> that's the actual envelope. So that moon lander is inside the envelope. I see. So the, the like spiky green thing that we've been seeing all over the place lately is the envelope. Am I getting this? Yeah, that's okay. the envelope. Okay. Interesting. So I wanted to do an experiment. Michael and I were talking about this the other day, and it's been a very long time since I have engaged my biology brain. And I'm trying to my best to understand. And I want to see if I can regurgitate what I have learned. And then, Michael, have you tell me where I'm terribly wrong and uh, where I'm right? Because I think probably there's a lot of people in situations similar to mine where I didn't follow the STEM path coming out of high school or going into college. And so I only have like a basic knowledge of biology and what's actually going on and how viruses work and how they affect our body. Um, so, okay, here we go. So when you catch a virus as a human, it's interaction occurs within the cell. And then the virus, which is often represented by the weird alien looking thing that we were just talking about, lands on the exterior of the cell, injects its own genetic information into the cell which may be in the form of DNA or RNA, which I, <laughs> I was thinking of as like the DNA. If you think of a stick of string cheese and then you peel that string cheese in half, each of those halves is the RNA <laughs> and the whole string cheese is the DNA. Anyway, so once the virus is injected, the genetic information into the cell, the DNA or the RNA um, goes through the cell's machinery. So the virus uses the cell to reproduce that genetic inf information and create proteins that go on to continue the process of using other cells. And then uh, it kind of starts to sound to me like a self-replicating space drone or a space probe from, what is it? I am Legion, I am Bob or something like that. I, I don't even <laughs> actually know what it is. It's a great book <laughs> is what it is. Maybe I should read it sometime. Anyway, <laughs> am I getting this vaguely right? Yeah, I, I think so. I think you are getting it pretty correct. And so the way that I, you can kind of think about what viruses are doing to your cells is that they're hijacking them, pretty much. So since a virus only contains, it will contain a few base proteins, but it mostly just contains its own genetic material, it cannot go through processes to replicate itself. Um, it cannot make more copies of itself on its own. And so it has to use your cellular machinery to reproduce itself. And so it has to inject its genetic material into your cell and use your ribosomes and your polymerases and your energy, your ATP, to be able to replicate itself. So viruses can either contain DNA or RNA, and RNA can be double-stranded in viruses, which is a unique aspect of viruses, meaning that it has that double helical structure that we're all familiar with, with okay. DNA, but it can also be single-stranded, which means it's ready to be produced as a protein as soon as it enters the cell. Um, Quick question and so, for you. Yeah. Um, what is the benefit for a uh, virus to have a double helix RNA strand? So it's not necessarily a 
benefit analysis, I would say it's, um, it really depends on, we talk about like the host, where the virus comes from. Um, if a RNA contained within a virus is helical, if it's double stranded, then I believe it's le- more resistant to mutation. So mm. since it doesn't have all of these free molecule edges there, it's kind of sealed. Um, it's less likely to be changed. Um, okay. So that's potentially one benefit. Um, but it can, viruses can be DNA, they can be RNA, they can be double-stranded RNA. And in the case of the current SARS-CoV-2, uh, COVID-19 virus, it's a single-stranded RNA. Okay. So, you know, now that we're getting into the corona time, um, what makes the coronavirus so different and special and spooky? Yeah, so to kind of get into this, it kind of goes into the weeds of molecular biology. Um, oh, okay. And, <laughs> and yeah, so I'll, I'll try to walk walk it through. And my understanding, I'm definitely not an expert, but of my understanding... Um, so coronavirus is an umbrella term. There are many, many different coronaviruses, um, SARS and MERS that people are probably familiar with. Um, but this is a very specific one. And coronaviruses are known for having a very large amount of genetic material within them. And so the current COVID-19 virus has close to 30,000 bases in its genetic material um, okay so how does that so compare to something how does that compare to something like influenza um it's expon- not exponentially but it's much larger so there's much more genetic material that's being put into your cells by the coronavirus than say influenza so does that mean it can mutate quicker because it has just more to work with <clears throat> um potentially it can mutate quicker but i think the main the main thing about this is it has many more what we call open reading frames. Okay. Um, and so this is where it kind of goes into the weeds. Um, and so when RNA, so the basic central dogma of molecular biology, of biology in general, is that DNA is transcribed into RNA, which is translated into proteins. Got it. And so RNA has open reading frames. So if you picture, like, you can picture it as, a, like, a paragraph in a book. And um, if you want to start reading the book, you don't want to start in the middle of a paragraph because that's not going to get the idea across. You need to start at the beginning of the paragraph and finish at the end of the paragraph. And so an open reading frame is like a paragraph in the genetic structure of the virus. Um, And so when it's being translated from RNA into protein, it will translate a series of these paragraphs called open reading frames into um, distinct molecular proteins. Um, And it can be read at any of these reading frames. And what's unique about the coronavirus is it has 10 reading frames. 10 distinct reading frames, where some viruses may only have a single reading frame. So you can think about it like ten, a 10-paragraph 10 essay, and each of these paragraphs can be read independently um, of one another and translate different 
proteins into your cell. And so since this virus has such a large genetic library, it poses difficulties because it just makes the work that much greater to try to understand it. Whereas if there was one reading frame, all of the research, all of the work going in to understand it would be on that single reading frame, but it just complexifies it exponentially to add 10 reading frames. It's into this quite process. literally an order of magnitude more difficult. Correct. Much, much more difficult. Wow. So, you know, just to jump in here for a sec. So I suppose this may be abundantly obvious for some people, but this is essentially why we call computer viruses viruses. They essentially inject code into your computer system, it replicates itself, and then it messes with your system. And the more complex viruses are those that are more moddable, more complex, easier to hide, and can spread more quickly. Is that sort of a way of looking at this? Is it's like a really effective computer virus? Yeah, I would definitely say that's a good good analysis of it. Um, it really is a... Com- like a computer virus it it hijacks your cell just like a computer virus kind of hijacks the systems of your computer wild yeah huh that's that's it's pretty wild and so the coronavirus in and of itself what could you could you elucidate for us how exactly does it for like a better term kill you um like what what's it doing you know like we know the the response like you know severe you know um, autoimmune respiratory system or something like that syndrome something mm-hmm. so it's a complex process that i'll just try to give my understanding of the general outline of it is okay. so um the coronavirus has the is inside of this envelope that's what we've all been seeing um it has these glycoproteins so a fatty protein on the okay. outside that pretty has thick. Yeah, it's pretty thick. And it has these glycoproteins on the outside that are called spike proteins. Um, Ooh. Yeah, it's spike proteins. And so when it gets... So somebody coughs, and you inhale the particles, or the droplets, the droplets from their cough. And that has the coronavirus inside of it. Um, these spike proteins, um, glycoproteins, on the envelope of the virus have a high affinity for binding with receptors in the cells of your lungs. Hmm. Yeah. And so these receptors in your lungs, your lungs basically have alveoli inside of them, which are responsible for taking the oxygen from the outside world and oxygenating your blood. Got it. And they look like Uh, fish eggs, right? Yeah. They kind of look like fish eggs. Um, Cool. And so it's these cells that oxygenate your blood um, and participate in this gas exchange process that are binding to the spike proteins of the coronavirus with a high affinity. They're doing it quite well. And that's what's allowing the virus to inject its genetic material into your cell. And so after its genetic material is in your cell, it's going to start replicating itself. Um, it's going to start creating more copies of the virus, essentially. Um, and with that, your body is going to have an immune response. Your immune system is going to kick in to try to fight this virus as it's happening. Right. And so there's a lot of things that can go wrong. And a lot of things that the virus is doing, but also your own 
endogenous immune system is doing that is eventually leading to people's demise. So in other words, it's our own system is that's killing us more than just the virus itself? I would that's kind of- hesitate to say, like, it is our own immune system that's killing us, but it, it's the virus prompting a response in our immune system that for some is killing them. But also the virus itself is responsible for the, that immune response. So I the see. virus is using our system to kill itself if that does that make sense so like it seems like the virus is smart to do that in in one way i suppose uh it makes it easier for the virus to access more cells inside your body so that it can can continue to reproduce right but at the same time you hear all the time about or well maybe not all the time but sometimes about uh how viruses that last a really long time don't kill their host quickly this is why it's spread faster than say ebola which basically makes you bleed and then die within a couple days is that it spread so quickly because yeah it'll kill some of us but really there's little to no symptoms or it just stays in limbo for a long time right and it needs us to stay alive long enough to jump to another host lovely Um, so that's kind of creepy and weird which uh leads to a question that i i have and this is kind of to backpedal a little bit but um how does the virus like evolve so it goes from person to person how can you draw the connection for me between the like production of protein process and the evolution to like a new stage of virus part yeah yeah i can try to talk about that um the evolution of the virus is occurring in its sequence and so by sequence i mean its genetic code And so since viruses don't have any of their own molecular machinery to reproduce, and they're using your cell's molecular machinery to reproduce, um, they have to go through all of these processes, um, RNA becoming protein, and that protein eventually becoming the new envelope, the new shell for the virus. Um, And since the genetic material has to go through all of these basically machines to to be synthesized um it's at risk of gaining mutations random mutations just like any of your the genes in your body are and so okay it, I see. it gains mutations as it's being produced and then is repackaged with these mutations okay if that makes so, sense so that happens like anywhere between i think we were you and i were talking about this the other night anywhere between patient zero and like patient 80,000. Yeah. Right. So say, yeah. So say there's a particular sequence in patient zero and just for simplicity, let's say it's a U G C a U G C in patient zero, all of the viruses produced in patient zero's cells will have the sequence a U G C and that'll be passed passed to patient two, patient patient three, patient 100, and it will still be AUGC. But in patient 100, a change will occur randomly in the virus sequence that will change it to AUCC. And then all of the pa- people that patient 100 passes it to after that 
the virus will have AUCC rather than AUCG or GC. And in the, yeah. And so in that way, the virus is accumulating mutations as it moves through the population. I see. So, so it, is it possible? I, and this is me just kind of like conjecturing. Is it possible for there to be, well, <laughs> I, the answer almost seems obvious now that I'm asking it. If it's possible for like, say patient 100 who has this first random mutation to infect say three people who then go off and each infect start a string of a hundred infections themselves um, for the 100th patient from each of those persons to have a random mutation. And then you have like several different strains of the virus. Exactly. Yeah. And it becomes this complex branching process where there's all of these slightly different, very slightly different strains of the exact same virus moving through the population, all accumulating random changes as they're transmitted. Lovely. That's yeah. so fantastic. That, that gets in the way of the creating the, um, the vaccine then, right? Yeah, ex- exactly. That's, that's, like really, that's like really what scientists are working to figure out right now. And why it's so important to have the sequences from patient zero to patient 100 to patient 80,000 to patient 1 million um, Mm. to be able to see how the sequence is changing. And when you have all of this um, data, all of the sequences from patient zero to patient 1 million, you can determine a rate of evolution, how quickly these changes are happening. And so the rate of evolution that scientists are working to figure out is so important in the ability to create an effective vaccine because the vaccine will target a particular sequence. But if that sequence has mutated, it can no longer target it. So if the rate of evolution is very high, it's going to be very difficult to create an effective vaccine because the virus is changing so much that we can't keep up with it. So doesn't this like beg the question then is even if we get a vaccine out in what the next year or so, we might be looking at just having coronavirus for a long time, like sort of like how we have a cold and flu season, we'll have a cold flu and Corona season. Could be. Um, I mean, I'm not an expert at all, but I think it really could be. And just how exactly how the flu vaccine is updated every year and scientists make their best guess of the most prevalent strain that will be moving through the population at that time and make a vaccine that targets that strain. Uh-huh. Um, but nonetheless, the next year have to create a similar vaccine that targets a slightly different strain. Um, it could be the same thing, but it's really dependent. Scientists aren't sure right now how quickly the rate of evolution really is. And so it's difficult to know whether it's um, whether it's possible to synthesize a vaccine that will be effective every year, like say the vaccine for chickenpox, um, which is like effective. The virus is changing at such a slow rate that that vaccine is always going to be effective, or whether it's going to be something like the flu, where it's changing so quickly that there's going to have to be a new vaccine every year. Great. That's absolutely lovely. <laughs> and I, I suppose that that makes the asymptomatic carrier 
issue kind of a scary prospect, right? Because it could be changing and we have no idea. Exactly. It could be mutating in the asymptomatic character carriers. And since they're asymptomatic, they're not going to the doctor and they're likely not going to have their genetic material analyzed for the virus. Um, It could be changes happening that we don't even know about. And it's also not that every single patient with coronavirus is having the virus sequenced from them um, because it's not exactly a simple thing to sequence the virus. Um, And so they're taking samples from various places. So I guess this is where things get a little wild is... Like, like, okay, like, you know, I remember reading about like Korea, which is a little bit later on in this crisis than we are and have been testing a lot longer. Is they're finding like, yes, we're like, the the idea that young people don't get sick is silly and that young people do get sick. But one thing they found is that a lot of people are asymptomatic, particularly young people, and particularly if they're healthy, not to say that they don't, but like some people do get sick. So the problem is, is that like, outside of a really like ubiquitous testing regime and tracking of people, it seems like almost an unsolvable problem to a degree for at least liberal democratic societies. Like you can't just track everybody at all times in like America. You can't force people to take tests all the time. That's, I mean, as far as I'm aware. And so to me, when I look at this, like social distancing and stuff like that can help for flattening the curve and helping our hospitals, but trying to eradicate this virus seems like almost impossible like without having to resort to draconian means that honestly go against how our society is built. Yikes, That's a scary actually. thought. Yeah, yeah, no, seriously. Uh, like, Yeah, ugh. because at any point, like despite the curve being flattened by social distancing, at any point, just like how there was 10 cases in the U.S. to start and now there's 300,000, um, at any point when the social distancing and all of these things that we're doing to slow the transmission is lifted, it has the potential to once again just follow that exponential infection rate. Well, and so then that's where get th- things get a little weird too, is that then you start having to make some interesting policy decisions about how you operate your society. I mean, to a degree, like in America, like, like, like in Korea, part of how they've been able to deal with the crisis is that they don't have the same civil liberties we do. They're a democracy technically, but they track people. There's a lot more social compliance, just societally and culturally speaking. They have apps that track everybody, all that stuff, and the resources to go about it. In America, yeah, there's like the NSA that's been tracking us for years, but we don't have anything that robust to track all of Americans and everything they're doing at all times, so on and so forth, without really breaking so many civil liberties. For that matter, even enforcing social distancing starts to encroach upon First Amendment rights to assemble. So uh, to me, it seems like at some point, there's going to be something to give where we kind of accept a certain amount of Corona, if that makes any sense, because or, like, or we, or we accept a certain amount of encroachment on our civil liberties. And, you know, not to be the, the quasi libertarian here, but I think that's a more dangerous and slippery slope. I mean, there's an old phrase, you know, never let a good crisis go to waste, but how you get dictatorships and essentially authoritarianism is there's a crisis and somebody says they'll fix it by taking whatever need means are necessary but once you like go down that path, it's very hard to go back. I mean, that's already happening in Hungary, for instance, where essentially their dictator, sorry, prime minister has essentially shut down and destroyed his opposition and there are no more elections and all that kind of stuff. And they're tracking of people more and whatever. 
And to me, what's spooky is in America, we haven't done that, obviously. But if we want to stop that virus or stop it, then we have to get rid of some of our liberties. And there's always that argument is that like, there is a tension between security and liberty and anybody prepared to sacrifice liberty for security doesn't deserve it at all, to paraphrase Benjamin Franklin. I wonder at what point we'll have to say as a society, okay, this is how much cost we accept for the liberties that we fought for, believe in, because it's kind of testing the American idea of what we value. We always say we want to be rugged individualists, but okay, never mind. We're not going to take the cost of that. We were allowed to play with the idea that we're free people and we can do whatever we want and the government can tell us what to do. But the moment you actually have to pay a price for it, that, you know, people will get sick and die and whatever. Now, are we prepared to actually pay it? You know, because right now we're not. But at some point we we will have to face that. We are compromising already a bit to it. I mean, to a degree, we are like the majority of people are making their best effort to stay home and all of that. Um, but yeah. it's interesting also how this pulls out like, uh, other ways of connecting with people that we haven't had in our, in our social norms. Um, and it also is fascinating how all of this arises from, <laughs> from like a virus, which is not even a cell. It's not even something that's alive. Right. Yep. It's an outward enemy. I mean, the re- revolution is here. It's just because of a, you know, essentially a biological robot that's going after people. And, and it's the, fascinating to me that we can connect a non-living, like, what do you even call it if you don't call it a microorganism? Michael, do you have a word for that for me? <laughs> um, I mean, I think virus is the best one. It's a virus. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's a it's unique, microscopic. unique thing. <laughs> microscopic little thing that we can't see that is at the the cellular level uh, that has gotten us at least in this conversation all the way to dictatorships emerging at the largest level of social functions that there are. It's, it's fascinating. I I mean, and the other thing, like I was having an interesting conversation with a friend of mine yesterday about inevitably we'll have to reopen at some point. Society has to still function, et cetera, et cetera. What's the sort of social scarring that comes from this? First of all, just being indoors so long, we're already like, I was reading an article this morning, like rates of domestic abuse and substance abuse and other things are skyrocketing, right? So you already have just the damaging of people staying indoors, not socializing and not being human, so to speak. And those mental effects on people are going to be damaging. But then once people are out and about again, how are they going to interact with services? Are they not going to be as, you know, going to restaurants and doing so on and so forth? How do they interact with friends and family? Is it going to be a more antisocial society? And what does that really mean for us as people? And uh, I, I guess my concern, my pearl clutching is that in the end, even if we survive this crisis, even if we get some liberty or whatever, there will be some things that will never come back. And like, sure, there's creative destruction. It's really nice that we have digital you know, abilities and that like working remote and doing things like that are becoming more normalized, which I think will be good for society. But there's certain things that won't ever quite come back. Or if they do, it'll take quite some time, you know? Like, it's like one, one of the things that, that, that makes like a human life worth living is sharing it with other people, you know, like going to restaurants or having brunch with somebody or going to a show or whatever, and you're hanging out with your friends in close proximities, when you take that away and when people are scared that it could kill you, 
what does I just that do to share, <laughs> I just want to share my germs with my friends. <laughs> yes. No, like, think about it. Like, think about how gross, like, a music festival really is. Or, hell, just going to a bar with your friends or a cafe. Like, it's yeah. spooky. <laughs> like, or, a, a, like, yeah. a public restroom. Like, oh, yeah. All of this, like, uh, all of the germs that we interact with on a daily basis when we're not encountering a pandemic. Uh, I don't know about you guys, but I think I've washed my hands more in the last two months than I have, like, I don't know, in the last six, like, combined. Like, I, I'm washing my hands, like, four to five times a day for 20 seconds with soap. Uh, like, usually, I'm washing my hands after I use the bathroom or touch something really gross, but that's not that frequent. Like, I don't know. It's an interesting reflection like not only for myself, but I think for society as a whole to self-reflect on the kind of habits that we have, not only with our own like personal hygiene, but our, our social structures and our social habits and our hygiene habits in our communities and in our wider world. That could be in the end, a good thing. Um, Like one of the things like when I was traveling in Asia and I'm sure you saw it too, Hannah, when you were traveling, is it, at least in like in say Japan, for instance, or Korea or whatever, who have had, you know, run-ins with such, you know, viruses and spooky things before. I mean, like SARS in Singapore and Hong Kong, like that's part of the reason why like masks are so commonly worn there. Like I remember when it used to seem a little bit weird and silly, like why are people wearing masks all the time? It doesn't really make a huge difference, blah, blah, blah. But it's a social solidarity of cleanliness and staying clean and surviving and so on and so forth that we might just start to adopt in America afterwards, which I think probably be a good thing. You know, it's like, and the other thing that's notable is throughout human history, the ultimate vectors for viruses have been cities. Like since the dawn of time, like if you were going to die, it's you're hanging out in city around lots of different people, so on and so forth. I mean, that's where plagues spread. I wonder how this affects city development. It's like, what's been weird is that in the 90s for instance it was talking about how like cities would never come back and no one would hang out in cities anymore and like the suburban sprawl will continue seriously and you can even see it in the social not not social media but like the media itself movies talking about like how the cities are dead whatever and then there's been a big shift as technology's improved and how people really enjoy like local arts and small things and restaurants and blah 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 there's been increasing concentrations of people within cities again and I don't know about you. I kind of like that. I worried that that might shift in the reverse again. And you'll have the hollowing out of city life, which is part of modernity. You know, like I, as far as I'm concerned, I don't like the idea of suburban, like sprawl. It's bad for the environment. And to be honest, bad for the soul. But, you know, people might be more spooked from working in cities and companies who find that working remote is more viable means that they won't have to invest in particular cities or are having lots of office place, which means they can have remote workers from everywhere, which ostensibly is a good thing, but it also ruins that communal vibe that is part of what makes modern life interesting and fun. Like that's the thing that I'm concerned about is the social ramifications, even after we quote unquote defeat this virus or at least mitigate it. I don't know, guys, that's my worry. Um, Something interesting that I found out the other day And Michael, I can't remember if I told you this or not, Um, but the two of us, we are basically, it's possible that the only reason that we are alive is because of the Spanish flu, Uh, Mm. the last, the last like largest pandemic that there was, because 
our great grandfather, um, who was born in 1900, uh, of course turned 18 in 1918 when the flu broke out, um, had the Spanish flu really bad and was still young enough to be able to fight it off. But because he got the Spanish flu really bad, he was unable to be drafted for the world war of the era. (laughs) And, um, like it's, it's, completely possible that if he had gotten drafted he wouldn't have come back and then we would not be alive um so so there's that yeah that's wild i I wonder is there going to be a baby boom after this basically a bunch of coronials quarantines etc etc like seriously there there probably will (laughs) there will probably also there will probably also be a, a dearth like there like there are going to be inevitably a number of people that would have existed that will not. Uh, Oh man, that's a counterfactual right there. (laughs) Also interesting to think about. I mean, that's the thing. This um, is going to be a cultural touchstone for us forever now, essentially. It is. Okay. I have one last virus question. Um, So I came across a video. I think it was a, it was a Khan Academy video about viruses and Mr. Khan said that five to 8% of the current human genome is from viruses or made of viruses or something. Uh, Mm -hmm. Are are you able to explain? Yeah, I can try to explain some of that. Um, So when, so we've talked about the virus injecting its genetic material into your cell. Um, After its genetic material is in your cell, um, it can basically follow one of or one of two paths, um, one of which is it's immediately reproduced. It immediately makes more copies of itself. Um, the second option is that rather than immediately making more copies of itself, it sits silently inside of your cell by incorporating its own genetic sequence into your DNA sequence. And so it actually splices, it cuts open your DNA and inserts itself in, in there. So it's sitting in your cells, being reproduced, not as the virus, but as just copies of the virus um, sequence silently. And so over the course of evolution, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of years as humans have been evolving, this has constantly been happening where small snippets of viral DNA have been put into our own DNA. And so, and in a large sense, this has created an adaptive advantage, has been selected for positively by natural selection, in that people with some of these viral sequences gain their progeny and themselves gain a sort of immunity. They're able to produce antibodies to viruses when they enter the cell. And so in that way, the addition of all of these viral sequences eventually has, over the course of hundreds of thousands, millions of years, has come to be so that our genome is really a mosaic of viral genomes. Whoa, that's spooky. Like, talk about transhumanist right there. Yeah. Wow. It's crazy. So we are viruses. 
I mean, that's what, you know, Mr. Smith from The Matrix said we were, is a bunch of viruses. So, you know, spreading across the globe, spreading our genome and slowly infecting and killing the earth or whatever. Hey, but good news, the dolphins are back to Venice or something. So, you know, <laughs> awesome, guys. Really good job, folks. Ooh, they're returning. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're starting to come to a close of our time here together. Um, so... This is the part of the hour, quote unquote, where we do our arbitration section, where we discuss a particular topic, give a verdict on it, so on and so forth. So the thing I have to ask today to the group is, what do you think the world's going to look like in about a year? In like a paragraph, if you will. I'm going to toss this over to Hannah first. Okay, well, oh, it's probably the most interesting occasion to be asked that question, even though you ask me that question like twice a month. Uh, yeah. A minimum. <laughs> um, in a year, uh, I think we will be recovering um, slowly, uh, economically, slowly. I imagine that the economic recession that is stemming from this will probably act like any other and it will be a recession and then it will rise. The economy will rise again and uh, it will do its, you know, wavy thing that it always does where it goes up and down and up and down. Um, and I think we will have learned something as a society, whether we will be able to admit it or not about how fragile our systems are and how they can be destroyed by the teeniest, tiniest Trojan horse you've ever seen. Uh, or ever didn't see because you can't see it because it's a virus. And hopefully we will, and, and I don't know, like this is, this is kind of far reaching for a year from now, but uh, have started to build in better ways to address global events, because I think this is probably one of the first and largest occasions that we've ever seen of an event that is truly a global phenomenon. If we don't learn something from that, then I give up. I'm into that. What do you think, Michael? Yeah, I, I guess that's a tough question. But um, I mean, I think a year from now and in the coming months, I think we're all going to become exponentially more dependent on our technology systems. Um, and so in a year, that will just be increased, whether we're still dealing with the physical like repercussions of social distancing and whether that's still being encouraged a year from now, which I think could be a possibility. It's hard to say the science of developing a vaccine isn't clear at all or treatments for that matter. Um, and I think, um, I think in the scientific community a year from now, hopefully they will be getting themselves together and learning how, important it is to be able to convey scientific information to the general population in a clear way that can potentially save lives and make policy clear. Because one thing I've observed in this whole thing is that governments creating policy and people following policy is largely, it's dependent on political factors, but it's largely the government looking to the science community and asking what's going on, what do we do? And in that way, the scientific community has to be able to communicate clearly and not in um, not in confusing <laughs> confusing 
very precise scientific language, just in normal language, what is going on and how that translates into policy. And so I hope a year from now that um, we're kind of able to get our act together in that sense and that we're also able to not become just entire computers where we just sit with five screens at all times instead of going outside. But I see the economic fallout. (laughs) Yeah. I see the economic fallout being huge. Yeah. So I I would piggyback off the economic fallout. Um, I'm thinking in a year we're either going to fall into a depression to be perfectly honest. Um, even you can't at this point, like the social distancing required to fight this as well as the ripple effects of laying off so many people so sharply will probably put us in a much darker situation than 2008. Um, you can look this up on your own time, but you can take my word for it. But most American savings have been depleted over the past 10 years. The 2008 recession really um, depleted what the middle class had at the time. And this is going to hit harder than the previous recession will make it look cute, to be honest. And as a result of that, you'll either have the startings of new policies, either a new deal part two, or you'll see some dark parts of humanity come out more. It may, it'll make like the things we've been complaining about the alt-right look pretty cute in comparison. The other big thing is even if things work out domestically, my prediction is the great decoupling that people have been worried about where like, you know, the West and China start to move away from one another, as opposed to the hyper globalization we've talked about for the past 20 years, I think that's going to start to be happening. Because we see that even though on paper and mathematically, greater trade and interconnection between nations leads to higher levels of profits and intercultural exchange and all that, we see the security risks and fragility of such a system where all of the, you know, masks are made in one city in China. And if China falls apart, then everybody falls apart. So we're going to see, I think, a return to almost traditional nation state politics that we haven't seen in 100 years, or at least the startings of it. I, I'm not very positive in the near term future, but maybe in are five we, to 10 years. Hmm, are yes. you saying we're going toward a tragedy of the commons? Yeah, I, I honestly, I think we're going to an autarkic situation it's something where essentially all the stuff that Francis Fukuyama and the rest talked about in the 90s, how globalization would bring us all together and be hunky-dory and everybody got really mad at trump about hating trade and all da, 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 da. will ironically be wrong where us being less technically efficient in the sense of high levels for trade and whatever and less social with other nations will be a byproduct of trying to maintain um internal cohesion and security considering the virulence of diseases and to be perfectly honest, the how quickly countries have turned on one another when it comes to trying to survive this crisis. America may, may be trying to take masks from other countries, but we're not the only ones. And the idea that, for instance, even China would be a co-equal partner, as like John Kerry thought in like 2004, and everybody used to think, is pretty much over. It's not to say our country has dealt with this crisis fantastically, not at all. But it also tells us that the geopolitical threat is quite clear from that part of the world. I don't really see this as being the start of a brand new age, but it definitely will be some interesting times. But then again, I usually have the uh, negative hot take. So that's my view. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Anyways, folks, um, we're drawing a little long here, but I want to really thank Michael for hopping on and explaining to us the sciencey things because we are social scientists, not actual STEM majors back in the day. You know, (laughs) I mean, thanks, Michael. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, you know. It's really, really appreciate it. 
Yeah, thanks. And also, as always, thanks to our lovely producer, Steph, for dealing with all of our antics, as well as our listeners who keep on showing up week after week to listen to us get Dave drunk and talk about policy. Now, for those who are listening, as always, you can find us on pretty much any streaming site you want. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Spreaker, Google Play, you name it. Be sure to check out our website at arbitrar.org. And also have a fantastic week and stay safe out there. Don't get the corona. And have a lovely rest of your day. Goodbye.